You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. It's a pleasure to introduce uh, our PhD alum from Slavic Studies, uh, graduated in 2016, Jose Vergara. As you can see, he's currently an assistant professor at uh, Brimar College. Uh, it's his first year as an assistant professor, although he uh, has battle scars from being on the job market and, and other institutions, so um, I think he's a seasoned assistant professor, I would say. Um, I think one of the things that impresses me about Jose is the variety of the research that you've managed to publish, even though you're only six years out from your PhD. So let me just read some of the, some of the articles uh, that he's, he's, he's published. He's written an article on the multilingual Czech surrealist poet Ivan Blatny. He's published a, uh, 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 an article on Daniel Harms' short story, Blue Notebook Number 10, through the lens of cognitive linguistics. And he's written articles or, or, or conducted interviews with other uh, uh, writers, including Andrei Bitov, uh, and an article on Fyodor Dostoevsky, Vladimir Nabokov, Sasha Solokov, uh, Mikhail Shishkin, and Yuri Alesha. I mean, wow. Um, and the talk today is drawn from his recently published book by Cornell University Press with the wonderful uh, book cover that uh, there was some agonizing over of how it would look. Oh, see, there it is. <laughs> All future plunges to the past, James Joyce in Russian, literary, uh, in Russian literature. Um, I did want to mention uh, two things. One is that tomorrow, uh, Jose is leading a Zoom-mediated discussion with the uh, Belarusian author and Nobel Prize laureate Svetlana Alekseevich. It will be conducted in Russian with English interpretation. So if you're interested in that, as I think uh, probably many of us here are, are, would be, um, you can find the information. If, I think I googled Vergara Svetlana Alekseevich conversation and found it immediately. And you can register for that Zoom. It's at noon tomorrow, correct? Yeah. Madison time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, just the other mention, I was, I will, uh, talking to Jose uh, yesterday at lunch, um, his new uh, book project, probably a book project, um, uh, deals with Russian incarceration narratives. So I'll leave it at that. If someone is interested in that and would like to ask a question, I'll plant a question uh, about this next book project, which sounds absolutely fascinating to me. Jose. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure sounds here. good. Perfect. Uh, so first, I just wanted to thank you all for attending, of course, and, and certainly to David and Jennifer and Krika um, and Slavic for bringing me out. I'll be, um, as was mentioned, participating in a Slavic conference this, this weekend and uh, doing a number of things and staying busy with grad students and, and other uh, aspects of uh, parts of UW and Slavic. So it's really a delight and an honor to be back in Madison. and. Uh, and to share some of this research with you all. Um, and I know some of you have already heard bits and pieces of this or seen bits and pieces of this research, but um, I'm really excited again to kind of recontextualize it and, and present part of my book in this way. Um, and as, as many of you also probably know, this is the uh, centennial year of Ulysses, uh, published 100 years ago. Um, we're approaching Bloomsday in June, so it's nice to kind of celebrate together in this, in this way. Um, yeah, and uh, as I was saying, uh, for my talk today, I thought I'd share kind of an overview of the main arguments, the main uh, through line of uh, this book, All Future Plunges to the Past. Um, 
Uh, and along with some examples from a couple case studies presented in the book, uh, kind of honing in on those, and finally conclude with uh, a few insights uh, drawn from interviews that I conducted with some living writers for the conclusion of the book. And kind of see uh, who Joyce is, where Joyce stands in Russian culture today. Um, and also I wanted to me mention, given this, uh, this past meeting the future, my past here, meeting uh, the future here, uh, the future plunging to the past, all of this, I decided to go with uh, kind of an old version of the, the project's title, The Nightmare of Paternity. Um, that's really, again, kind of the, the through line of, uh, of the book. These, these Russian authors concerned with making sense of their lineage uh, through and in, in dialogue with Joyce. Um, so, of course, we'll start at the beginning. Um, and, and that's Yuri Alyashev's first writer. Um, but when the playwright Vsevolod uh, Vishnevsky visited Joyce in Paris in 1936, the two had much to discuss. Uh, the Irish writer mentioned that he'd heard that his books were banned in the Soviet Union. Vishnevsky was pleased to report that Ulysses had been translated, uh, as he's put it, earlier than, many, uh, than in many other countries. And Vishnevsky wasn't lying, but a champion of Joyce's art, he exaggerated. Uh, the 1925 translation of Ulysses, in fact, consisted only of fragments, uh, pieces of various episodes from Ulysses. And furthermore, the head of the International Information Bureau of the Central Committee, Karl Radek, had infamously led an attack on Joyce, which began in the early 1930s, uh, and uh, laid the groundwork for the next several decades of how one could speak about or, or not speak about Joyce. A pile of dung teeming with worms photographed with a cinema apparatus through a microscope. That's Joyce. <laughs> Radek proclaimed at this, this meeting of the first All-Union Congress of Soviet writers. Still, some recognized Joyce's genius. Uh, Boris Poplavsky, the young emigre writer, delivered a lecture in 1930 in which he asserted his profound admiration. Everything taken together creates an absolutely stunning document, something so real, so alive, so diverse, and so truthful that it seems to us that if it were necessary to send to Mars or God knows where a single sample of earthly life or facing the destruction of European civilization to preserve a single book for posterity, perhaps it would be best to leave Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, so statements such as these, uh, those by Radek and Poplavsky stand at these maximalist extremes, reflecting the wide range of emotions and strong opinions uh, Joyce's text elicited and continue to elicit today, uh, and, and from readers of different artistic and ideological camps. But before becoming anathema to the Soviet regime, Joyce was widely discussed, if not frequently read. His art then turned into a forbidden fruit to be enjoyed mostly in private until the publication of the Viktor Hinkis and Sergei Haruji, Ulysses translation, pictured on the left here, um, in the late 1980s. Nevertheless, Joyce became an attractive symbol for a branch of Western literature in Soviet and emigre communities. What they appreciated in his text varied. A radical approach to language, new devices, the ability to transform one's experience as a budding artist into a national epic, a dangerous or progressive influence. Amid these various points of emphasis, Russia's, Russians crafted a personal version of Joyce, a kind of my Joyce along the lines of a my Pushkin, Moy Pushkin, uh, for themselves and for their readers, while responding to similar concerns, history and paternity foremost among them. Indeed, 
While Russian literature's conversation with Joyce touches on many subjects, uh, Joyce's project to alter his past and future through writing, as exemplified by his protagonist, Stephen Dedalus' aesthetic theories in Ulysses, which we'll turn to in a second, uh, serves as a major through line in this story. And the five writers I focus on, Yuri Alyesha, Vladimir Nabokov, Andrei Bitov, Sasha Sakhalov, and Mikhail Shishkin, are fascinated by, even obsessed with, uh, the question of literary heritage. The Russian historical experience uh, and entirely irrevocably altered how writers might relate to their predecessors uh, by violently cutting them out from the tradition, by limiting access to a lineage and a place in the development of world literature. Partly for this reason, Stephen's Shakespeare theory serves as a productive lens through which to examine these writers' relations to Joyce. Um, in episode nine of Ulysses, Stephen suggests that a writer can rewrite the past by creating lasting art and by selecting a literary forefather to supplant the biological. According to him, for instance, uh, Shakespeare became a father to himself by writing Hamlet and therefore engendering um, the world's conception of the bard, became father to himself through his, through his art, uh, father, son, and holy ghost. And all five uh, Russian writers that I, uh, whom I look at and explore their, their writing uh, responded to this idea in Ulysses based on their individual circumstances. Joyce's creations served as one impetus for their experiments, but the theory also functions as a mirror by which their anxieties and their goals um, can be observed and are reflected outward. Simultaneously, the subject raises the issue of how, throughout the 20th century, cultural values changed in the Soviet Union, Russian immigration, and the post-1991 environment. What was possible? What was desirable? Where did Russian literature belong? Their responses to Joyce's text, particularly Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, speak to how they tackled such immense questions relative to their own time and place. And to give a sense of how this process worked, uh, I'd like to comment on a couple of these case studies. For the sake of time, I'll focus on examples drawn from two writers' novels, Yuri Alyesha and Sasha Sokolov, um, from two different time periods. Uh, but of course, I'd be happy to discuss the others if I'm missing anyone's favorites and their interpretations of Joyce during the Q&A. And I think I saw someone reading a Nabokov novel in the audience, <laughs> so uh, I'd be happy to comment on that as well, or that writer in particular. So, uh, first, uh, Alyesha. Speaking at the 1936 general meeting of the Moscow Union of Soviet Writers, Alyesha offered Joyce as the face of a negative alien model that must be eradicated. According to Alyesha, Joyce exemplified the reason for the urgent need to struggle against formalism and naturalism. The artist should say to man, yes, yes, yes. But Joyce says, no, no, no. Everything is bad on earth, says Joyce. And thus, all his brilliance is of no use to me. This writer said, cheese is the corpse of milk. Look, comrades, how terrible. The writer of the West saw the death of milk. He said that milk can be dead. Is it well said? It is well said. Uh, it is said correctly, but we don't want such correctness. We want neither naturalism nor formalist tricks, uh, but artistic dialectical truth. On the surface, there's nothing particularly special about uh, Alyesha's comments, which align with the trend in Soviet criticism from the early 1930s uh, on to denounce Joyce's perceived pessimism and non-progressive vision of history. Uh, by reproaching Joyce early and publicly, he could align himself with the so-called correct critical point of view and potentially avoid greater troubles such as arrest or execution in the future. 
Examined more closely, Eliezer's speech reveals itself to be highly contrived and not without contradictions. In the process of covering his own modernist tracks by damning Joyce's formalistic technique and purportedly pessimistic worldview, he alludes to Ulysses' famous lyrical conclusion, the bottom here. Uh, uh, this is Molly Bloom's stream of consciousness soliloquy uh, when she recalls her husband's proposal. Then he asked me would I yes to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume yes, and his heart going like mad, and yes, I said yes, I will yes. Eliash's statements thus begin with an obvious lie. Joyce's finale ends with one of the most well-known affirmations in European literature. It stands as an instructive contrast to Ulysses' own cynical ending uh, to his novel Envy, which finds its protagonists resigned to their undesirable fates. Such an unconvincing and odd juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition raises a host of questions. Uh, just how sincere was Eliesha in his speech? Why did he lie about Joyce's pessimism? Was he truly abasing himself, or did he expect his audience to see through the subterfuge? Despite his, uh, this, this diatribe, Eliesha implicitly champions Joyce's artistry by recognizing the milk corpse metaphor as strong. His comments, uh, his comments represent a non-committal doublespeak of sorts. Um, and despite the ambiguities, they raise the issue of Eliash's complicated relationship with Joyce and how he responded to Ulysses through his own fiction. Joyce's impact on envy, uh, in fact, goes beyond sporadic allusions to Ulysses. Uh, Eliasha establishes a sustained response as he investigates ideas central to a situation within a climate growing hostile toward experimentation and individualism in Soviet Russia. And in rereading Envy through the lens of Ulysses, we better understand the form former's thematic complexities. The parallels and reversals that Eliasha features throughout his text can best be understood as a response from one writer who attempts to conceptualize the issues facing his generation in an unstable period to the work of another writer who faced analogous concerns in much different conditions. And with his references to Ulysses, Eliasha suggests the difficulty, even the impossibility, for a Soviet writer uh, like him to pursue Stephen's Shakespearean, Joycean-inspired path. Um, like Ulysses, Envy concerns the clash and potential union between a young poet, young writer, Nikolai Kavalyerov, and a more successful older man, Andrei Babichev. Um, one of the most intriguing amalgamations of characters occurs on Envy's opening pages. Here, Eliasha recreates the morning scene from Joyce's novel by alluding to Stephen's roommate, Buck Mulligan, via Babichev. It's a lot of text, I know, so we'll just focus on a few things. Um, so the two opening passages side by side. Possessing huge physicality and uh, tremendous life energy, Babichev shares many features with Buck. The latter, as we can see here, also enjoys morning routines and pays close attention to bodily needs and sensations. The character's vigor overflows into Buck's chanting and Andrei's noisy ablutions. Their antipodes, the writer Stephen and Cavalierov, run counter with their, their sleepiness and sardonic attitudes. Neither Babachev nor Buck, how, Buck, however, feels in the slightest upset by his roommate's gloomy disposition. Their, their complete uh, self-absorption beats all. In addition, the buoyancy inherent to their nature comes through in various restless actions. Buck's uh, ridiculous, <coughs> excuse me, rapid crosses, uh, mid-gurgling, Babachev's reflex to sing in tune with his bowel movements, 
and to thrust out his elbows as he knocks against the walls of the toilet while he shifts on his feet. Crude energy reflected in the various action verbs keeps their bodies in motion, pulling other characters into their spheres of influence. Babich's uh, famous bathroom scene also clearly owes much to another character from Ulysses, Leopold Bloom. Uh, this scatological moment can be neatly traced back not to Russian literature, but rather to Joyce's uh, hero. Let's see right here. Uh, quietly, Bloom read, restraining himself the first column, and yielding but resisting began the second. Midway, his last resistance yielding, he allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read, reading still patiently, that slight constipation of yesterday quite gone. Yeah, I'm sure you did not expect this on a Thursday afternoon, but <laughs> here we are. Uh, Bloom and Babichev immersed themselves in the physiological rhythm of the release of their bowels, finding uh, supplementary pleasure in the control they exert. Such concern for the physical is uh, absolutely emblematic of envy, where Kavlyedov places so much emphasis on Babichev's fleshy and massive frame, admiring its strength and feeling repelled by it. And Ulysses, on the other hand, Ulysses' unflinching portrayal of all aspects of human physicality, from bathroom habits to sexual encounters, offered Ilyesha and others a model for such candidness. So opposite the three-part Babichev-Bloom-Buck figure looms, or rather lies, Kavalyerov, uh, the young hero. This would-be writer corresponds to Joyce's stand-in, Stephen. The two are chiefly united by struggle against their respective father figures, biological and otherwise. And again, in this parallel, Olyesha makes his rebuttal against Joyce's position as a Western writer, not one whom he dislikes, but one whose ideas cannot help him in the Soviet Union. <clears throat> In both Ulysses and Envy, an older man sympathizes with an artist after an alcohol-induced confrontation leaves him in the gutter. This same situation happens in both novels. Uh, Bloom recognizes in Stephen, rebel against the old order, his own deceased son, Rudy, whose ghost, aged to 11 in a haunting scene, rises before him as he gazes at Stephen's body on the street. Babachev, too, feels sympathy for Kavalyev, rebel against the new order, primarily out of paternal feelings displaced from another young man he's adopted. He sees him on the, on the street after he's been knocked out in this, this fight. From the shared plot point arises one of the primary sources of anxiety for Kavalyev and Stephen, their sense of dis dispossession. They're both turned out from their living quarters after having um, stayed in these different situations, as well as from a bar and brothel, respectively, and these events lead them to experience a sense of displacement that feels equally physical and mental. They believe that they don't belong either with the individuals around them or with society at large. Again, a topic that uh, obviously extends beyond the Russian Joycean tradition, but that nevertheless unites these various authors. In Ulysses' opening episode, Stephen begrudgingly turns over his key uh, uh, to Buck, his, his frenemy, when they go swimming and calls him usurper thinks this. Uh, in other words, Stephen treats his peers as symbols of a divided Russian, uh, excuse me, Irish culture, for he disagrees with Buck's involvement with the Englishman Haynes and his anthropological interest in the Celtic revival. Kavlyedov expresses a similar sentiment to Babachev's brother, or to Babachev's brother, after he's told to vacate uh, the apartment that he's been staying at. Um, and he, he says that an important person had thrown him out of his own home. They feel a sense of entitlement over their living space, never mind the, the questions of priority and ownership involved. It's not so straightforward. 
Um, in each case, the implications of being usurped go beyond a simple domestic dispute. More importantly, issues of national and cultural dispossession besiege them. Uh, much like its beginning, the end of Envy supplies a fascinating reformulation of Ulysses. Bloom's homecoming to his wife Molly might be compared to Cavaliero's Ivan Babachev's dual occupation of the widow Anichka's room. Um, the synchronization begins when Cavaliero returns to Anichka's apartment. This is uh, an old widow that he's been renting part of her apartment uh, from. Before falling ill, he turns on the water tap and then, after sleeping with, with her, uh, dreams of a rushing flow. Likewise, having made his way home with Stephen in Ulysses' penultimate episode, Bloom turns on a faucet and the narrative takes up his fascination with water. Uh, what, in, uh, what in water did Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier, returning to the range admire? Bloom and Cavaliere wash, then go to their respective wife, mother figures, creating another instance of Aliesha's subverted parallels. Each author employs the image of the water tap as a means of purification, but soon after we discover that the outcomes are substantially different. Kavlietov's cleansing experience devolved into a nightmare, much as Stephen fears his mother's corpse as an embodiment of the past hold over him. Um, Ghoul, chewer of corpses, no mother, let me be and let me live. Uh, Kavlietov considers Anichka a reminder of the history he wishes to shed. During the scene in which Cavalieri beats the widow near the end of the novel, the narrator likens her to a woman from Pompeii, a particularly vi uh, vivid simile. Like the ruins of Pompeii, Anichka and the stultifying existence that Cavalieri associates with her will not be stamped out. The sons furthermore envision Anichka and May Daedalus, Stephen's mother, as corpses, these kind of ghoul figures, incarnations of a death that is both literal and figurative. The critical difference between the two endings lies uh, in Kavlietov's divergence from Stephen's individualistic path. Aliesha closes Envy with his hero's resignation, accompanied by Ivan's uh, ironic ura. The latter's grotesque proclamation that it's now Kavlietov's turn to sleep with Anichka frightens him, as these words remind him of his transformation into a paternal figure. Um, he, in a sense, morphs into the Bloomian type, refuting his association with the youthful artistic Stephen and resigning himself to a defeated state of affairs. Ivan Babachev, Kavlietov's second paternal surrogate, um, Andrei's brother, is forced by circumstance and by choice into um, uh, what we can see as a kind of decadent blazes boiling role in this closing scene. Uh, he cuckolds, in a sense, Kavlietov by claiming Anichka before his protege's return, thus ruining the young man's um, problematic, let's say, plans to, to, quote, put the widow in her place, his final botched expression of power. In the widow's bed, Kavlietov's masculinity is challenged and his father's history, or the lack thereof, haunts him. He realizes that he'll go no further and that his predecessor, or no further than his predecessor, but remains doomed to repeat the insignificant life that, that he led. By bookending Envy with a parallel variants of Ulysses' beginning and conclusion, Aliesha emphasizes the main points of his response to Joyce. Kavlietov may begin in a situation comparable to Stevens as a dispossessed writer seeking transformation and resolution, but his project collapses. Stephen, um, as yet untested, more or less, boldly proclaims in the intense instant of imagination, that which I was is that which I am, and that which in possibility I may come to be. Aliesha uh, intimates, shows that in Joyce's West, there may be cause for sons to rebel against fathers, but there's also the option uh, for them to go their own way should they have the courage. 
no such alternative. <laughs> Stephen's possibility exists for men like Kavlyarov. Now, uh, there are, of course, few reliable keys for resolving questions of literary influence. This may be particularly true when it comes to a writer with such immense reach and symbolic capital as Joyce. Um, what comes after him? Everything? Nothing? In the Russian context, where Soviet authorities excised him from the record for decades, what might he represent to writers today? In these circumstances, Joyce serves as a litmus test for a Russian writer's position vis-a-vis -vis the West. He can be not only a great writer, but an alternative path. For his part, uh, Mikhail Shishkin, the subject of the second half of my talk, has never been reticent to discuss Joyce's role as one of his main forebears. I, I, I think I might have said Sasha Sokolov at the beginning. I meant Shishkin. Anyway, uh, in a 2005 interview, for instance, uh, Shishkin said that he hopes to merge the Western tradition's love of the word, as seen in Joyce, with the Russian tradition's love of man, exemplified by Gogol, in particular, the overcoat. It just, I don't know, doesn't totally make sense to me, but okay. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, <laughs> His first encounter, it might be the opposite. His uh, enca first encounter with Joyce was at the Moscow State Pedagogical Institute's Foreign Literature Library, where he picked up Ulysses. Um, in uh, correspondence I had with Shishkin, he, he compared this experience to uh, what he called a battle with the Soviet mindset, with uh, 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 Sofka, uh, an attempt to save himself in that toxic atmosphere and to draw breath from the te text. This is uh, what he wrote. Ultimately, though, Shishkin didn't read Ulysses in its entirety until later, after he had relocated to Zurich in 1995. Rather than encountering all the many sought-after surprises he, he thought awaited him in the book, he realized much of it felt familiar, that he'd imbibed Joyce's innovations from others. Thus, for Shishkin, communing with Joyce through his own writing allows for a reintegration of his generation with world culture, everything that had been missed. And in the essay, uh, More Than Joyce, Bolshech and Joyce, which is part of Shishkin's recent efforts to, uh, to write creative miniature biographies of various cultural, cultural figures, he positions the Irish author within Russian letters. Uh, this essay is included in this volume um, with a couple other such mini biographies, uh, statements. Um, and I take this, this essay on Joyce to be a kind of Rosetta Stone that acts as a working through of Shishin's poetics, an exploration of the metaphysics of art through the lens of what he sees in his foreign predecessor, and finally, a tool to integrate, integrate himself into the European cosmopolitan sphere, shifting from the cultural periphery to the center, just as Joyce managed to do. Um, here, I'll focus on two uh, Joycean components of Shishkin's project, the iterative nature of storytelling and the life-affirming energies of the literary word. These uh, twin points which, which Shishkin emphasizes allow writing to preserve humanity manifest themselves in maiden hair at the level of style and structure. Although its plot is relatively simple, maiden hair is uh, quite difficult to summarize, but I'll try. Uh, comprised of three interlocking stories or plots, uh, Shishkin's novel produces for the reader a narrative that grows increasingly interested in mixing times and spaces, first, second, and third person narratives. It opens with a Russian emigre uh, whose experiences working as an interpreter in Switzerland draw heavily from Shishkin's own biography. The letters he sends to his son, excerpts from his reading, quotations from his reading, and accounts of his travels also appear. 
interspersed throughout the book are transcriptions of interviews with Russian speakers fleeing war-torn areas such as Chechnya. And nearly 100 pages in, Shishkin introduces yet another uh, thread, the diaries of Isabella Yureva, a real singer who was born in 1899 and died in 2000. Eventually, however, everything shifts or shifts again. The, the interpreter's reading of Greek history, various myths, and his own biography begin to intertwine with the refugee Q&As, while two stream of consciousness sections rupture any sense of cohesion. Uh, in this new chronotope, Greek warriors inter interact with Chechen refugees, and the interpreter, the protagonist, imagines an encounter in Rome with one of his Soviet school teachers, uh, whose image and life also begins to overlap with that of uh, Bella Yuriva. So per perhaps the greatest parallel between Joyce's and Shushkin's text is their mutual interest in, uh, as I said, the iterative nature of stories. And that's, you know, you probably noticed in this convoluted and overlapping plot. Um, if everything has already been told, their books imply, then the author's mission consists of reframing fragments from the past in new contexts, in fact, causing a simultaneity of experience. And uh, Shishkin observes the same phenomenon in Finnegan's Wake. He focuses primarily on, on Finnegan's Wake in this essay. Um, when he writes, in Joyce's book, everything happens concurrently, <clears throat> as in life. Differences between, uh, yeah, between characters are consequently stripped away in the book. For example, through play with symbols and initials, Joyce's main characters, such as he is, Humphrey Chimpton Earwicker, HCE, uh, becomes, among many, many, many things and people, Haroon Childeric Egberth, Habits Childers Everywhere, and Here Comes Everybody, um, and the female character, uh, Anna Livia Pluribel, ALP, becomes associated with an entire list of rivers, other, many other female figures, all sorts of things. And these modulations allow Joyce to transpose his characters easily from situation to situation, uh, to merge his characters with the myths of the past, as he does in Ulysses with Homer's Odyssey, to some extent. Shushkin's characters, too, uh, might be considered little more than vessels for ideas and archetypes. He provides scant details regarding their appearances, for instance. This is, in fact, one of Shishkin's main points in the novel. All stories have already been told a hundred times, but you, this is your story. The story is the hand, you are the mint. Stories change you, like myths. Who the characters are matters little. Joyce's novels and Maidenhair are largely composed of such echoing stories. Shishkin emphasizes this technique in his essay on Joyce. The song about the drunken Finnegan becomes a book palimpsest. Here, everything is like in life. He keeps repeating this idea, literature is like life. There's a uh, relationship between the two. Father becomes son, mother-daughter, a river, the ocean. People blend, overflow, splash like words. Finnegan's Wake, but Ulysses too, served as a productive model for Shishkin to explore this worldview. His characters come to embody tales from the past, from Longus' Daphnis and Chloe, and Xenophon's Anabasis, to the detective stories of Poe, Chesterton, uh, Christie. In many respects, what Shishkin writes in More Than jo Joyce is really about himself. This is never truer than in his discussion of the, the words life-affirming power. Finnegan's Wake, he claims, is an incantation for the resurrection of the dead, a magic spell of flesh risen from the grave. Maidenhair repeats many such proclamations, as when one of Bella's lovers, who has been reading the Anabasis, tells her, uh, Xenophon's soldiers are no better or worse than to today's soldiers, who are shooting at someone right now, this very minute. 
Imagine, how many people have slipped by and these Greek soldiers held on because he wrote them down, because he brought them to a very special sea. Thalassa is the sea of immortality. He sees in Joyce the profoundest expression of how words can reclaim that which has been lost. He's therefore not simply a symbol of the Western canon, but rather a model for how a writer can manipulate words to fashion history itself. Uh, Shushkin's essay manifests this idea as he aims to reintegrate Russian literature into Joyce's legacy through his narrative story. Uh, he mentions the, the uh, accounts, the stories, for instance, of how Akhmatova read Joyce with Lydia Chukovskaya and Osip Mandelstam, uh, two great uh, 20th century Russian poets, how Eisenstein dreamt of filming an adaptation of Ulysses. Shushkin's engagement with Joyce operates on this metatextual level as well. As a reinterpreter of the past, he aims to demonstrate how Russian culture sustained its links to Joyce even when thought impossible. Both in More Than Joyce and Made in Hair, Shishin associates the aforementioned power of the word with a divine source. In the former, he writes that an author's innovations seem like hocus pocus to the uninitiated reader but will be entirely comprehensible to God. Such is the nature of Finnegan's Wake, which effectively crafts a pre-Babelian linguistic zone by mixing all cultures and languages or a great deal of them anyway. Uh, one of Joyce's most potent symbols in, in this project um, is a tree, not just a single tree, but many, which nonetheless are all one, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, Yggdrasil, and others, many mentioned. Close to the novel's conclusion, HCE and uh, ALP on Olivia are transformed into Adam and Eve figures, or retransformed, and afterward into a tree representative of the prototypical family. Creatures of the wold approaching him, hollow mid-ivy hermits of the desert barking their infernal shins over her trilateral roots, and his acorns and pine corns shooting wide all sides out of him. Plantitude outsends of plenty to thousands, and her leaves since sin sinning since the night of time, and each and all of their branches meeting and shaking twisty hands all over again in their new world through the germination of its gemination from on's outset till at odd's end. It's beautiful. The tree imagery following Shishkin's logic unites everyone in uh, pantheistic fervor, while language, understood as a kind of natural force, not only represents life, but sustains it. Something similar takes place near the end of Maidenhair, when the text breaks down and begins to combine fragments of the many narrative threads, as, as I said, um, as well as a multitude of quotes from the interpreter's wide-ranging reading and stray bits of writing. Shishkin actually cites, borrows, steals lines from other works. Um, the novel concludes with a tour guide's call in the streets of Rome. Where are you? Follow me. I'll show you the green, green grass. The maiden hair. Uh, uh, this invitation refers to Shushkin's primary symbol, the maiden hair, a grass that grows in different guises throughout the book's pages with greater frequency. As the stream of collective consciousness shakes loose divisions between voices, Shushkin's own Babelian project is enacted. His heroes, whether living or dead, come to coexist on the white sheets and within the world word itself. The fern uh, then denotes this tectonic shift. As the anthropomorphized maidenhair proclaims in the book's furious conclusion, so this seems to come from the maidenhair, Ariantum Capillus Veneris, the green, green grass from the genus Ariantum, the god of life. I grew here before your eternal city, and I will grow after. 
the novel closes with a symbol of unstoppable growth as the various stories return to this, their source, the, the fern language that transcends all. There's much more to be said about Joyce and Shishkin. I'd be happy to elaborate on any, any points. Uh, their shared use of epic Greek subtext to explain and elevate modern day counterparts, an obsession with father-son relations. Extra textual matters might also speak to uh, their exchange. Shishkin is a self-exile who settled in the Joycean city of Zurich, um, as Maiden Hare's postscript reminds us, just like Ulysses ends with uh, Zurich mentioned in the postscript. Uh, the idea of the author, and by extension humanity, as refugee, as they search for a literary home, father, compatriots. Shishkin takes just as much from the fabric of Joyce's writing as he does from his creative philosophy of literature and history. What reading more than Joyce alongside Maidenhair allows the reader to see most clearly of all is the conflation of life and art that Shishkin emphasizes throughout the former. Um, at a couple, more than a couple, unexpected moments, he mentions that something in Joyce's book, uh, books is like in life, as when everything happens simultaneously or when older generations turn into younger ones. For him, Joyce's worldview manifested itself not only in some texts that relatively few people read, unfortunately, uh, despite my best efforts, Richard's best efforts, uh, but rather in the way its narrative framework reflects, perhaps even somehow shapes human experience. This then is Joyce's greatest contribution to Shishkin's art, an understanding of the writer's near mythical task. That's how he's framing it anyway. What's at stake is how words can make sense of a world that seems so disjointed and chaotic. Um, and always doing so through innovative techniques. For Shishkin, to fail to cross this border between art and life, uh, to fail to achieve this mission means to be less than Joyce, less than a true author. So these are two case studies in uh, what we might call the linear history of Joyce's impact on Russian letters. They describe how Joyce progressively entered uh, and changed Russian literature. However, the Joyce and Russia story might also uh, be properly calibrated or formulated uh, with an explicit awareness of the fertility of borrowings and of Joycean intertextuality. Um, reading intertextually, um, as I've done, as we do, necessarily involves recognizing literary history, one prerequisite for which is a working assumption that history can be recounted and interpreted in a coherent manner. Uh, and I certainly don't think this is a position that should be surrendered. Much can be learned regarding the text and context of Russian writers spotlighted from this perspective. However, the first thing to consider is the possibility that there's something intrinsically oppositional in the position of a writer vis-a-vis -vis history. Each Russian author's reading of Joyce speaks not only to their understanding of his work, but also to their efforts to situate themselves within shifting historical factors and legacies, as well as an evolving comprehension of intertextual relations. The writers struggle with history according to this line of reasoning, is an attempted liberation from a worldview that stifles one's current reality with concerns about the past. When Stephen famously uh, calls history a nightmare from which he is trying to awake, he has in mind the hold of the past embodied by his parents, England, and Catholicism. He also means the weight of literature that looms over him as a young artist. Ulysses then represents a working through of these ideas as Stephen attempts to shake free uh, from the stranglehold of this multitude of fathers, both literal and figurative, by means of the Shakespeare theory and numerous Russian writers with their own historical baggage eagerly turned to this theme in, in his work. 
but the writer's and historian's craft is also essentially dependent on their worldviews. We might then, or we can, imagine what a polyphonic approach to a history that's not yet concluded can yield, especially if applied to more recent materials in the Russian Joyce story. How has Joyce come to be read in the last 30 years? What does he represent to the latest generations of writers, critics, readers? How do they conceive of this, uh, of his influence, that naughty word, now that he's been successfully reincorporated into the canon? And so I'll, I'll zoom in on a few things. You don't have to read this tiny text. Uh, for my book's conclusion, I interviewed a number of authors, as I mentioned, uh, to get a sense of this alternate Joyce and Russian story, one that's more open-ended, chaotic in a sense, uh, as yet unfixed. And here are a few of their responses. Um, first, how writers encountered Joyce. Um, a couple, uh, Marina Stepnova and Anna Glazova, um, prose writer, poet, um, spoke to me of the physical response Joyce elicited in them, the kind of power his words held over them when they encountered him in, uh, as, as teens. Um, Ivan Sokolov of a younger generation suggested that even by his time, Sokolov's time, uh, Joyce was commonplace, something found on his parents' bookshelf. He still loved Joyce, still pulled a lot from him, but it wasn't um, as uh, a dramatic an encounter as it was for the older generations. Another key theme in our conversations were the connections between Russian literature and Joyce, sometimes unexpectedly, I think. Uh, some view him as a foreign continuation of sorts of the Russian tradition. Alexei Salnikov, for instance, told me, in some way, Joyce affirmed the right of the Russian classics. I have in mind Dostoevsky and Tolstoy to write verbosely, long-windedly, long with a strong focus on details, leaving the plot somewhere to the side of the whole enormous narrative. So it's a kind of retroactive permission or gift that Joyce gave to the, the, the Russian tradition. Dmitry Buikov, as many of you know, um, one of the most famous writers uh, formerly in Russia, um, found something even more experimental in Joyce's art, even if its origins come from Tolstoy, as he, as he says. For me, Joyce is the founder of total realism, which touches on all aspects of being, from the religious to the physiological. He is Tolstoy's main success, successor, and he pulled off Tolstoy's dream of producing a detailed description of a fictional person's day. Um, and Ulysses brought European prose of the 20th century to a close, and no one has gone further yet. He said he's trying to, he himself. And he mentioned the American writer, Daniel, um, not, uh, Mark Z. Danielievsky, as someone close as well. Um, we note too in these statements how uh, some writers view the connection between Joyce's work and the Soviet ex experience in quite different ways. For example, Sergei Solovyov, who incidentally translated in a kind of poetic form Joyce's uh, intimate letters to his wife, Nora, into Russian. Um, he uh, uses a Golden Fleece Odyssey comparison to suggest that Soviet writers could relate to Ulysses in a way maybe other readers couldn't, uh, given the mythological, teleological underpinnings of the Soviet project. There's some sort of correlation between what Joyce was doing and what the Soviet state uh, or ideology was doing. Um, on the other hand, Zinovi Zinik, uh, uh, an emigre 
uh, writer instead addressed, addresses the in-betweenness of Ulysses and Soviet life, the question of finding one's own true identity. It's another kind of connection between the readership in uh, the Soviet Union and um, Joyce's work, and Ulysses being a novel about identity and being unsure of where you fit in. It's clear, of course, that the story of Joyce in Russia remains in motion despite his official canonization within the Russian sphere. What we can pull from these statements and others is how Joyce became and continues to be emblematic of a desire for freedom. This freedom has taken various forms, but undergirding many of them is the hope to combat a historical narrative that restricts the artist's identity. Men out of time, early Soviet writers such as Ilyesha, saw in, jo in Joyce's work a solution to their precarious state as individualist artists in the newly formed Soviet Union. Their turn to the Western Joyce was a complicated one, to say the least, not always successful. Meanwhile, emigres such as Poplovsky and Nabokov sought to recover the past that the 1917 revolution had taken from them by translating Joyce's works and his aesthetic theories into their context, uh, sometimes literally or almost literally, as in Nabokov's case. Post-Stalinist writers such as Bitov opted to disengage from the war with the past, seeing the futility of doing so, and uh, would take elements of Ulysses uh, as decoration for his own works, decorating his Pushkin house, this novel Pushkin's Hidon, with little bits of previous writers, including Joyce. Um, even later writers, Sakolov, Sasha Sakolov, among them, foremost among them, finally broke through and accessed Joyce as a stylistic influence. We see that more in, in his writing. For the post-Soviet era, turning to Joyce means reconnecting Russian literature with the tradition it had been separated from, officially for so long, from modernism. This contact fuels the novels of the Russian Joycians, and in their engagement with the Irish writer's theories, they found much to shape their own visions and responses to the worlds around them. But this transformation cuts both ways. Uh, strong writers, as Harold Bloom says in his controversial Western canon, have the wit to transform their forerunners into composite and therefore partly imaginary beings. Indeed, Joyce became a remarkably plastic symbol for those Russian writers who viewed him as a crucial element in their escape from these histories. Fluctuating political, cultural, and personal realities would dictate how exactly they could read Joyce, literally and figuratively, yet they found in his writings the means to beget their own lineage through the literary word. His work in progress continues on Russian soil. Thank you.